I can't tell you what, what a great experience it is to stand in this pulpit and look out there and just see what I was just watching. Just the body of Christ interacting, connecting, um, loving on one another. Uh, it's, it's real privilege. So, this morning, uh, we are going to be voting on a new pastor. Um, there's a big change in the wind here at the church. Um, and before I, I get into what I want to talk about this morning, I just want to make a, a, a comment, a twofold comment, really. First, um, there was one evening where I came to praise team practice, and after the choir is finished practicing, the praise team comes up, and we always gather around here, and, and the two groups join together in prayer. And Jake, or Jason was giving an update on the pastoral search committee and where they were at, and at that point, I think there were three or four candidates that were uh, still involved, and Jason said, they're all really good candidates. The church would be lucky to have any of them. And Nancy Houston chimed in and said, well, they'd be lucky to have us. <laughs> and that, that really stuck with me. And as I stand here this morning as the candidate uh, that you're going to vote on, I just echo that. I feel very fortunate, very blessed to be in a position where I have the opportunity to uh, serve as pastor and to minister to this congregation and to this community. Um, the second thing I want to comment on is, uh, as I have ministered through the years, uh, I've pastored for 14 years uh, as a youth pastor and as an assisting pastor, and also my wife and I planted a church and pastored in Fruta for 10 years. And in all that time of pastoring, there have been two men who have impacted me uh, significantly in how I viewed the ministry and how I began to practice the ministry. The first man was a guy named Jeff Johnson. He was in Grand Junction, and he, uh, I was an assisting pastor to him. And he was the one that taught me really biblical ministry, really focusing on the Word and using the Word to fashion and form how we minister. I'll be talking a little bit about that this morning. And the second man who impacted me significantly was Steve Morehouse. When I came here, I had never really experienced anyone who was a community pastor. When I say community pastor, I mean someone who was out there being salt and light in the community, who certainly tended his flock, but was out there mixing it up with a lot of different groups. And I watched Steve, and I observed that, and I learned so much from him. And I just can't tell you, standing here today, um, with the opportunity to be the next pastor here, at a church that is so well-grounded. Um, I really obviously give God the glory, but Steve deserves an awful lot of credit. He, he's an amazing man and someone that I really look up to. So I wanted to say those two things before I got into the crux of what I want to talk about this morning. And that's really my philosophy of ministry. Um, nothing, nothing that I'm going to talk to you about this morning is new. Uh, it's not unique uh, to me. It's stuff I picked up along the way from different people, Jeff and Steve, probably foremost among them. Um, but I want to talk to you about it because this is really how I minister, 
how I view the pastorate. And as you're going to be voting on me this morning, I want you to know what you're voting for, what you can expect with me in the pulpit and in, in the congregation as your pastor. I call these the, the 10 essentials of ministry. Um, and there's obviously a lot more to ministry than just these 10 areas that I'm going to talk about. But these 10 areas are areas that are really non-negotiable for me. Areas that are so critical, so important uh, in how I carry out ministry and how I conduct it that uh, if I can't do it this way, I really can't do ministry very well. So hopefully you'll agree with me. The first area of ministry, Patrick, if you'd put it up, is biblical teaching. And as I go through these ten essentials, uh, what I want you to understand is they build on each other. This sort of forms a foundation and builds, uh, if you will, a structure for ministry. But biblical teaching forms the foundation uh, of ministry. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. And in, Ephesians, or excuse me, in Hebrews 4.12, uh, the writer to Hebrews says that the word of God is living and sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So the word of God is powerful. It impacts our lives in ways that sometimes we can see in other ways and other times we can't really see. But it has to form the foundation of who we are as Christians and how we minister within the church and within the world. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who is wise, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat on that house, yet it did not fall because it had as its foundation the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So the difference between the two builders was one chose to build on the rock, one chose to build on the sand. I choose in ministry to build on the Bible as the basis for understanding how I view this world, for understanding how I interact with other people for how I counsel and uh, assist people in tending their lives. It's got to be the Bible. And so with, with me as your pastor, what you're going to get primarily is uh, through the Bible, verse by verse, expository teaching. That's the way I prefer to teach. That's the way I think that we can declare the whole counsel of the Word of God, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Sometimes we'll come across verses that are difficult. Sometimes we'll come across passages that are hard to understand or that perhaps we don't agree with. They don't fit into our worldview. And we have to wrestle with those passages. Occasionally, we'll have topical studies. Frequently, I would like to use some of the gifted teachers in this church to fill this pulpit besides myself. We've been very fortunate in this church to be blessed with a lot of very gifted teachers. But what you're going to get from me is this word. I don't have a whole lot to say. I'm not that interesting. I'm not that intelligent. Most of you probably are much smarter than me. Some of you know the Bible better than I do. 
All of you are better looking than I am. <laughs> but what you can be guaranteed is this is what you're going to get from me. And it's full measure. Next, prayer. Without prayer, everything that we do as a church is impotent. I mean, there's too many examples, really, in the Bible for me to go through all of them. But suffice it to say that without prayer, everything that we do will ultimately fail. Even if we start with the word, but fail to pray, fail to engage God, to seek his mind, to pursue his will, and to engage his power, we're not going to be able to do anything that we want to do as a church. As I said, there's a lot of good scriptures on prayer. I'm just going to read a couple of them. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Pray without ceasing. Have that attitude that no matter what the circumstance, no matter where the situation is, prayer is going to be your first response. In Mark chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And in Matthew 18, Jesus said, wherever two or three of you agree as touching anything, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. For wherever two or three of you are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. So prayer is going to be a big focus of, of ministry for me. Uh, I know that there are a lot of people in this church who are real prayer warriors. I've talked to several of you. I know that many of you have prayer groups that you're engaged in. And my vision for this church is for those to continue and for us to expand that and to begin to collectively join together in prayer and focused prayer where we see the outcome of those prayers, where we, where we tabulate the answers to prayer and where we call upon God day after day after day until we know his mind and we see his answer. So prayer is going to be huge. The third area is worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, when he was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, was talking about worship. And he gave some real insight into worship. He said that the Father seeks people who will worship him, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Through the power of the Holy Spirit within them, and also through the truth of the Word of God. There's a lot of direction in the Word of God about how we are to worship, how God wants to be worshipped. And he's seeking worshipers. And it's not because he's an egotist, but it's because he's God. And as God, he deserves and merits worship. In, in Revelation chapter 4, it, it reveals the angels who, who stand before the throne of God continually, day and night, without ceasing, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I suspect that they never get bored doing that. Really, God, do we have to keep saying this over and over? No. 
No, it's a great privilege to be worshipers. And in the church, one of our primary purposes in coming together is to worship. And so a big focus of our gatherings has to always be upwards, looking to God, refocusing ourselves on God. Sunday morning is so important. Now, I get that we're so, sometimes we go through the, the same pattern Sunday after Sunday, but it's so important because you know what happens here on Sunday mornings? You guys get filled. I get filled with the Word of God. But more importantly, collectively, our voices rise up to God in praise and in worship. And it pleases the Father. He seeks out each one of us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's a primary ministry for us. Fourth, essential, is baptism of the Holy Spirit. In John 20, 22, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I personally believe that when Jesus says that I'm going to receive something, I'm going to receive something. His words don't go out and return to him void. So he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So his disciples did that. They received the Holy Spirit there in the upper room. And yet... Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to tarry in Jerusalem until they received the promise from the Father. Now, they had the Holy Spirit that had been breathed into them through, the whole, through Jesus, but Jesus told them to wait yet for the filling of the Holy Spirit, that experience where the Holy Spirit would come upon them and empower them for ministry. I've talked about this a lot uh, throughout my ministry and certainly in my time here at this church, but there's three Greek prepositions that uh, influence how we understand what the Holy Spirit is doing with us. There's the Greek preposition in, E-N, which means the Holy Spirit is in us. And that's what happened to the disciples when Jesus breathed on them. The Holy Spirit came into them. When we become born again, the Holy Spirit comes into us. The Holy Spirit is also para, P-A-R-A, or alongside. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and helps us. But then there's a third preposition, epi, that means to come upon and overflow. And that's the experience that happened in Acts chapter 2, where the disciples were praying there in the upper room. They had been praying for 10 days. The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost came upon them, and they began to speak in other tongues. They were empowered for ministry. Peter began to preach, and 5,000 people came to the Lord that day, and the church was birthed. In ministry, we absolutely need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4 Verse 6 says, it's not by might, it's not by power. You know, it's not by the wisdom of man or the abilities that we possess that we are going to do God's work. He said, it is by my Spirit. So we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So there's going to be an emphasis in my ministry here on the baptism or the filling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All of us as believers have the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul exhorts the Ephesians. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and in the Greek, that language really means be being filled. It's a continual experience. Yield yourself to the Holy Spirit so that he can empower you and work through you. And if we're going to make a difference in our community, in our families, 
in our schools, in our government, we've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've got to be empowered by Him to minister and gifted by Him. The Holy Spirit, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, distributes gifts to the church, to people within the church, so that they can minister. Some of these gifts are very visible gifts. Others are less so. But nonetheless, they're gifts that allow us and enable us to minister effectively. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fourth essential. The next essential is faith, grace, and love. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, really powerful scripture for me, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now stop and think about that for a second. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And what is faith? Well, Ephesians, or excuse me, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. So faith is stepping out into a place that you don't really know how it's going to turn out. But you're trusting that something is going to be there. When we, when we believe in God, when we accept the gospel and believe in Christ, we trust through faith that there is coming a day where we will be transformed. Our bodies will be changed. We will be taken into heaven, perhaps at death, perhaps at the rapture, who knows, but we will be into the presence of God. That's all by faith. We don't see it now, but we believe that that will be the case. And in ministry, faith is so essential. I want to see people stepping out in faith and trying things that seem impossible. Where people go, what the heck is he doing? Why is he doing that? That seems crazy. When people are saying that about you, it's usually because you're stepping out in faith. Faith is is not easily understood by the masses. But we've got to have faith in our ministry. We've got to step out into areas, into regions that we aren't really sure how it's going to turn out. In the Proverbs, it says, well, let me just read it, because if I try to quote it by memory, I'm going to miss it. It's It's a good proverb. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. In other words, it's clean. Everything's orderly, looks good. What a clean manger. But from the strength of an ox comes abundant harvest. So the the messy manger is a good thing. Having ox in there, doing what oxen do, messing up the manger, is a good thing because you get an abundant harvest from it. And sometimes when we step out on faith, it's messy. Things happen. Sometimes they work out well, sometimes not so well. But it pleases God because we're trusting Him. So in ministry, we have to be people of faith in order to please God. And when we act in faith, when we step out into arenas that we don't really know how the outcome will look, but we're trusting God, sometimes it requires grace. And grace is really giving someone something that they don't deserve. The grace of God has come upon us. Well, I've heard it explained this way. Justice is getting what you deserve. If you want justice, you will get what you deserve. Mercy is 
not getting what you deserve. If you've done something, you violated the law, but you don't end up going to jail, the judge has mercy or leniency on you, you don't get what you deserve. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's where the judge takes the murderer and says, your crime is forgiven, come home with me, and I'm going to feed you an amazing meal. And you say to yourself, well, what judge would do that? What crazy court would allow that to happen? Well, the court of heaven. That's exactly what's happened with each one of us. We've received grace from God. We've been given what we don't deserve. And in ministry, we need to extend that same kind of grace to one another here in the church as people are stepping out in faith and blowing it sometimes. Or perhaps they're not stepping out in faith. Perhaps they're just blowing it. They're not doing what they ought to be doing. I'm telling you that we need to have an environment where grace is played out, where people get what they don't deserve. Bill Walton, the uh, Hall of Fame basketball player, said something about John Wooden, his coach, that I thought was really profound and, and I want to share with you this morning. He said, John Wooden created an environment that people wanted to be in. Now stop and think about that. As coach, he created an environment that people wanted to be in. It was an accepting environment, but it was also an environment that challenged them to achieve what they didn't think they could achieve. And we, we all know the story. Ten NCAA championships, the most winning coach in NCAA history. But he created an environment that people wanted, players wanted to be in. And what I'm suggesting to you is in ministry, through faith, by grace, we create an environment here in the church that people want to be in, that they can feel accepted in. And to know that they're not going to be judged. That they're going to come in and when they blow it, they're going to be accepted and forgiven and people will come alongside them and love them. In 1 John, John says that if we say we love the Father, but we don't love our brother, how can we love the Father whom we do not see and yet not love our brother whom we do see? So we've got to have an environment, people, where love is practiced. Faith works by love. Grace comes through faith. It's all interconnected. And that's what I hope to do here, is to create an environment where people know, when I come to community church, there is faith being exercised. There is grace being given. There is love being shown. And I want to be a part of that. The sixth essential is servant leadership. James and John came to Jesus and asked him for something. Actually, their mom asked for them. But they wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he came into his glory. They wanted to be in a position of prominence. And Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they said, yeah, Lord, we can do it. And he said, indeed, you will be. 
baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized, and you will drink the cup. And both John and James suffered as martyrs. But then Jesus said something really, really important to them. He said, if you really want to be great in God's kingdom, if you want to be prominent in the church, become the servant of all. Seek to benefit someone else versus yourself. And servant leadership is an absolute essential in Christ's kingdom. There in the upper room, John chapter 13, Jesus knelt down to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter said, no, Lord, that's not going to happen with me. You're not going to wash my feet. And then Jesus said to him, said, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then I have no part with you. And Peter said, well, don't just wash my feet, Lord. Wash my whole body. Point being is Jesus took the position of a servant. He said, you call me teacher, and you are right when you say that. I am your teacher. And yet, I, as your teacher, have knelt down to wash your feet, the most menial of tasks. And he was willing to do it. And he was teaching his disciples the importance of leadership by service. Not to set himself up in a position of prominence, even though Jesus certainly deserved that, that they had to uh, observe, but to demonstrate through his actions, through service towards others, that that was what true greatness really was all about. And in the church and in ministry, we have to lay our lives down for our friends. We have to, as Paul said to the Philippians, consider others first before ourselves. Seventh essential is equipping the church for ministry. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Well, I'm going to read this too because I don't want to miss this one. This is a good passage. Ephesians chapter 4. I, when I quote scripture, some of you might have this problem. I've read the scripture in so many different versions, and I've got a lot of scripture memorized, but it's usually a compilation of about at least three different versions that it comes out in. Um, it's usually generally accurate, but sometimes it's better to read the passage. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, to each one of us, so everyone here this morning, this is talking to you, young, old, alike, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself, or excuse me, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Christ gave gifts to the church. Why did he do that? Why did he give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? To equip the saints for the work of service so that we can all ultimately come to that place of unity in the faith and the measure of a mature man. So one of the important things that we do in ministry is equip one another for ministry. Now, there are leaders in the church that are gifted to do that, pastors, teachers, but there are many other ways which that equipping occurs. 
And so one of the things that we, that we have to do as we come together is to first understand that we are all ministers, that that grace has been given to all of us. I'm not the only minister in this church. It's one of the things I love about our bulletin when I first started coming here. It says that all the congregation are ministers. They're on the back page. And it's true. It's true. I think that ministry occurs best when the body cohesively works together. Everybody takes their part, fills out the fullness of the body of Christ. Some of us are, are eyes, some of us are ears, some of us are toes, some of us are noses. You know, I mean, we all have roles to play. And we, we have to equip each other for ministry and we have to step out into those ministries. You know, it's very easy for us to come to church every Sunday and to watch other people at work. And it's unfortunate because all of us bring something to this body. And equipping the church for ministry is an important aspect of what the pastor does, but it's also an important aspect of what each person here does. One of the things I would like to see this church begin to do, I've, I've shared this with several of you, is to develop a school of ministry where uh, we have a faculty of gifted and skilled teachers who will teach a curriculum that is ministry-focused so that people who desire to enter into a more expanded view and version of ministry can do so. We'll see how that goes. We'll see if that's on the Lord's plate. But that's something I would really like to see happen at this church. You know, every now and then, and, and I, I don't mean to be critical, I really don't, because it happens in every church. But every now and then, there's a clipboard that gets passed around and someone's looking for someone to become an usher or someone to engage in King's Kids Ministry or some other action. And my hope and my belief is that a time is coming in this church where there won't be any clipboards. People are going to be knocking down Virginia Harris's door, saying, Virginia, when am I on the list? When can I serve as an usher? People are going to be running to ministry because the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be so powerful. Check me on that. Let's see what's happening in a couple of years. See if that's still, see if we're still passing out clipboards. One of the things that I can guarantee I will do as a pastor here is I'm going to come alongside some of you, much like Jason came alongside Cody a few weeks ago and said, Cody, you're going to be the greeter today. Cody didn't volunteer for that, but I think everyone who was here that Sunday when Cody greeted can say, Jason did the right thing. Some of you have gifts that you have not exercised that others are seeing in you, and it's going to be my role and my facilitation of the, the Holy Spirit in your life, let's say, to come alongside you and say, you need to get into ministry. This moves us right into the eighth um, ministry essential, reaching the next generation. In Psalm 145, the psalmist says, each generation proclaims the glory of the Lord. And we've seen that, and it will continue. It will definitely continue. Each generation 
God has his remnant. God raises up people. But I want to tell you as a church, one of the most important things that we can do, it's essential, really, is for us to pass the baton on to the next generation. Those of us who have come to faith, who have walked in faith, who have experienced the goodness of the Lord, we have a responsibility to take an active role in making sure that kids from nursery through college get the message. That we support families and parents in their ministry to their kids so that the gospel can be proclaimed to them. We live in a culture that is toxic, folks. And I don't have to explain that to you. You all know it. It's a deadly culture. And it's killing our kids. It's leading them astray. And this church has to be able to pass that baton on, to reach that next generation. We have people who are engaged in ministry here. Rachel, Val, Tammy, Ginny who are doing amazing work, but they need help. Some of you folks need to step up and share the gifting that God has given you. Some of that wisdom that you have learned through the ages, you need to share with that next generation. You need to use in supporting families and helping them to be strong. If we don't reach the next generation, as a church, if we don't have our kids coming up in the faith vibrantly and excitedly, serving the Lord, then we failed as a church. That's not going to happen. The next essential ministry item is evangelism. Jesus, of course, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, um, said, Go ye therefore into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the Great Commission. We have to reach out to those who do not know Jesus, who have not heard the message of the good news of Christ. Now, there's a lot of ways that people evangelize. You know, and I'm just guessing. I may be wrong. But most of us in this building today, when we talk about evangelism, we sort of, we don't really evangelize maybe how we think we ought to. Or we think, I want to evangelize, but I don't really know how. I don't know what I should say. I don't know how to engage people. And I get that. I've been in that boat before. But I want to try to take a little bit of that edge off of evangelism, that sense of it's something to do, and really create an understanding of evangelism where evangelism becomes a part of our DNA. It's just a part of who we are. I believe that well-fed and well-tended sheep will reproduce. If we just allow the Holy Spirit to work through us and be ourselves, we don't have to go out with the four spiritual laws and knock on doors and, you know, convert people. We just have to be salt and light in our community. Wherever we go, there we are. 
And where we are, the Holy Spirit is. And where the Holy Spirit is, He's reaching out to a lost and a dying world. He has people in this community who He knows He wants to save. He knows that when they are reached out to, when the Gospel is preached to them, they will believe. In, in Corinth, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit told Paul, Paul, stay in this city for a long time because I've got many people here. Now Paul had just come to Corinth. There weren't that many believers there. But the Holy Spirit knew who was going to respond to the message. So folks, all we have to do is be who we are and allow God to work through us where we are at in evangelism. Now granted, there are times to specifically focus on uh, evangelistic programs and, and so forth, and we'll do that stuff. But you guys are the best evangelists. You can go where no one else can go. You can reach people that no one else can reach. Finally, the tenth ministry essential is cultural relevance and theological conservatism. And that sound, that's a long little phrase, but really, a lot of times what I've seen in the church is that we get very insulated in our own little culture. And we're not connecting with the broader culture at large. Paul, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, said, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means... I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So we have to be culturally relevant. We have to be outside of our box. We have to understand what's going on in the world and step out of our comfort zone sometimes culturally to connect with people. I haven't even been voted in yet, so this may be the exactly wrong thing to say. But I see mostly white people here. 